Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to episode two of our new History Hacks podcast, which is hosted by me, Alina Novobiliska, and the fabulous Alexandra Churchill. Say hello, Alex. Hello, Alex. <laughs> so, so I'm currently broadcasting to all of you from the not so sunny Poland, quite cold actually, uh, in mandatory quarantine, courtesy of the Polish government. Polish government, you're listening. Thank you very much. Uh, let's get on with the podcast. So I'm going to pass you over to Alex, who's going to introduce to you our new guest today. I'm really excited today because we're going to get to find out what life is like on the other side of the pond during this nightmare. Uh, so we have with us today the co-authors of an amazing new book called War Queens, which looks at extraordinary women who ruled the battlefield. What's even more amazing about this book is it's written by John Jordan, who has a, a great background in history writing. He's done an amazing book on the Texan Navy, which I so want to get him to do a show on with us. He also did a book about Roosevelt's leadership in World War II, but he's written this book with his daughter, Emily. Emily is a nursing student and Emily is it right that you were at the University of Kentucky doing your uh, your part of your study that dealt with pandemics when a pandemic got in the way of your study? Yes exactly so I'm, I've been taking um, public health courses and unfortunately we you know we learned how to identify a pandemic but um, we didn't quite get to the part with how to deal with it because we all had to go home. So we're online in classes now. So maybe um, in a few weeks, I'll figure that out. And John, you are, you're both you're together. You're coming to us uh, from Georgia, aren't you? That's right. Uh, we're just outside of Atlanta in a secure, undisclosed location <laughs> that can only be identified by the barking of our two rescue dogs, uh, Teddy and Scout. How's the toilet paper situation in the U.S.? Uh, it's pretty abysmal, honestly. It, it's it's <laughs> grim. The uh, casualty numbers are uh, starting to go up. Um, a, a very good friend of mine grew up in Soviet Russia and uh, has lived in the United States for 20 years. And she said, we didn't have anything like that in Russia. What's going on here? So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. I think the bigger, bigger issue now with, than uh, toilet papers is, is chicken and beef. Oh, Americans really? love beef. Yeah, Americans love beef and chicken, um, but but seafood they're not as big into. So that's like the third thing to go. So you go to these grocery stores. There's a huge seafood you know selection. It's still pretty good. Um, with uh, with beef and chicken, less so. Um, there's still plenty of food uh, here, you know, but it's just not like it was. And you can tell what uh, the kids eat at home. 
Yeah, yeah I, I hesitate to piss off the whole of America in one podcast, but how are people doing with the whole idea of doing nothing and staying on the couch? Oh, that's great. We're, we've got that covered. Yeah, my, my son, I think, is waiting for a government mandate before he'll go outside and exercise. So Excellent. I think we're, in, uh, <laughs> we're, we're in good shape here. The, the most exercised uh, creatures in the house are the dogs because – I uh, task Emily with taking the dogs out. Uh, I for, risk my life. Yeah, for yeah. Exercise. One, one. Of, yeah, yeah. What exactly. kind of parent <laughs> aren't you sending her out to do that? No. Yeah, you know, it's ridiculous. You know, it's and this part of the country, we don't have any mandatory lockdowns like they do in in Poland, Italy, Spain, and other places. So, uh, so it's all done locally. Basically, the, uh, the, the, the locals here will just take a, a shot at you if you're uh, con congregating in two groups from, uh, uh, from the inside of their window, a couple of bullets whizzing by you, you get the point, and then you uh, go back to your house. So yeah. it, we, do, we, don't, we don't have government uh, intrusion. Yeah, well, I'm not to say that there's not a few rules and curfews, um, particularly my boyfriend, the county, um, his backyard is split between two counties and one has a curfew and one does not. So we told him after 8 p.m., if he puts a toe across that line, he better watch out. See, this is the great yeah. thing about America is all the cross-jurisdiction, I guess, with federal, state, oh, yeah. county, local. Uh, you're going to be getting so too much information almost in terms of how to combat it. Oh, exactly. And, you know, we get misinformation all the time. Sometimes we think that we need to be following rules, but it's actually just the people next to us. It's a little confusing. Yeah. The biggest information this morning, I think, is uh, that uh, the Walmart on Shallowford Road has paper towels. So oh, wow. For everybody listening to the podcast, um, don't come to uh, North Georgia expecting to find paper towels at the local Walmart. Bring your pits, you got to bring your pitchfork if you're yeah, going to go into that yeah. melee. <laughs> okay. So, so but, but, but ser seriously, we're, things are, you know, I think everybody's adjusting in the same way they are in other places. Uh, I, I, Emily, weren't you learning about the myths of pandemics and, and yeah. about how people behave? Yeah. So we learned kind of in the movies, some things that aren't necessarily true are resorting to looting and violence. Um, and that only the government can keep order, but people really do get connected rather quickly. I've seen a lot of groups on Facebook coming together um, and supporting each other. Um, my favorite thing actually is the Cincinnati Zoo who has a famous um, little hippo named Fiona. They actually started live streaming safaris at three o'clock every day of the week, oh, starring that hippo for the kids at home yeah. um, to help out with parents because it's ridiculous. I mean, I've been babysitting for parents who that they're both home and they're fine with changing diapers and feeding the kids. They just need the kids quiet. So mm. um. do, do you know what the funny thing is? Things you didn't expect to happen in a pandemic. I don't know if you have Anne Summers over there, but it's a, it's essentially a lingerie store, but it's also kind of, if you go to the back and go through a curtain, it's a sex shop as well. And one thing that people <laughs> did not expect to be happening was they sell novelty pasta in rude shapes i don't think when you <laughs> pandemic stuff and watching like the end of the world with brad pitt that you expected to be feeding your toddler penis shaped pasta that's uh, so there was certain <laughs> happening that uh, people weren't quite expecting but let's get on to your book um i have to ask um what was it like father and daughter working together um it was really one of the greatest things that I've ever gotten to do with my dad. We've gone on a lot of great adventures together, but 
this was a new one because he was the person that inspired my love of writing in general from a young age. And it's been really great because I'm, you know, as a student of sciences, I don't always get the expression side of things and the writing side of things that as much as I would like to. So it was a really incredible thing to start in high school, um, just working together on it. And it's, it's been a real pleasure and he's pushed me a lot and we push each other. And so you're 20 now. When, when did you start? You say in high school. So how long has this project been going on? About five years. Um, So probably on the later end of when I was 15, um, I remember we were sitting um, in a room together and, you know, growing up I had asked him because he wrote military history and I said so many times, well, are there any cool women in these stories? And and he would tell me a few, but um, when I was 15, we were sitting and I I think it was some campaign um, propaganda or something, but um, saying, can a woman lead in a time of war? And I was like, well, that sounds kind of stupid to, you know, imply that they can't even with that. Um, but then I realized I didn't know a lot about that. So we just started talking together and we agreed that this was not a book that could be written by just one man or just one woman. Um, so, yeah. Kind of- yeah, it's, um, I, I guess over the last five years, it, uh, it's, it's been a, a really enjoyable journey because we've got different writing styles. We've had a number of chapters that uh, we ended up having, we, we wrote, but then uh, had to shorten either for, for, to appease the publishing giants or uh, for whatever reason. Um, but it all started because Emily has a knack of asking questions that nobody thinks to ask. Uh, I'll give you example, an example if, if I can, Emily. Um, this is from a few months ago. She had to scrub into a, and observe a surgery. I think it was, what, thyroid or something? Anyway, so the patient's doing her bit, uh, line out unconscious with her neck open. <clears throat> the anesthesiologist, surgeon, head nurse are all there, and they're pressing Emily to ask questions because it was a teaching hospital. Um, and uh, she didn't have any at first, but after they pushed her, she said, well, I do have one question. What would you do if there were a fire right now? And the surgeon just stopped and he stared at Emily and the nurse stared at the surgeon, the anesthesiologist who had big explosive uh, oxygen tanks stared at both of them. And the, the surgeon eventually said, well, we hope there is no fire. And so when Emily came to me and said, how come you don't write about women in military history? I probably gave her the same stare that the surgeon gave her. And, you know, that's kind of when this all got started. Autistic yeah, I don't think I, Oh, sorry. Well, I, I don't think I could have grown up asking questions like that without having two parents that are both lawyers. Yeah. So. <laughs> Excellent. I wonder if there was a moment when that surgeon wondered if you were a complete psychopath and you were about to light up the... the <laughs> Probably. <laughs> that would be where my or brain would spy. go. It. It's such an awesome story that you've decided to do this together. Um, so we, we kind of had a chat about what we we're going to talk about before. And I would really like between you um, to hear about... Because there are how many women in total are in this book? There's quite a few. Yeah, there's, uh, I think we've got a baker's dozen here. We started off from two dozen women. Uh, the criteria generally was that they had to be national leaders during wartime. Um, they, uh, of course, the, we, don't, it's, we don't have queens anymore that lead nations in war. They're all prime ministers or potentially presidents someday. And so uh, we, we started out with uh, a large group. Uh, we, t- we took away the ones who weren't national leaders like Joan of Arc, we, uh, we sort of pared down some of them that 
the historical record is a little sketchy about. Uh, Zenobia uh, is a great person with a lot of history there, but we, we ended up uh, cutting her because some of it was not as reliable as we would like. Um, you know, it was a little arbitrary in places, but we ended up with, uh, with 13 that uh, have terrific stories behind them. Amazing. So, um, Alina, I think, is going to kick off with our questioning of you. Alina, go for it. So, I'm quite interested to know what your top three favourite queens or leaders, female leaders, are. Definitely. So, um, well, the first two about my dad, def my dad and I definitely agree on. Um, our number one would definitely be Queen Jenga of what is now, um, what we now consider Angola in kind of Southwest Africa, um, who was a queen who ruled in the um, early 1600s. And she just has, I think, probably the most colorful stories in the book. When, when you agree, Dad? Great fashion sense. Right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Fierce on the She was a fashionista before fashionistas were a thing. Yes. So put, put her in context. Yeah, it is. Put her in context. When was she around? Um, so that was the early 1600s. So this was the time that the Portuguese were coming along the African coast and really um, just invading and conquering and everything. So she, that was her kind of lifelong big enemy and how she came to power. Um, so essentially she was um, among the Mabundu people and her father was the chief of the tribe. And growing up, she was said to be the... Um, mentally and physically the superior child, but she had a little brother. Um, and so he kind of tried to take power for a while, murdering any relatives after his father died. And even um, in a crazy tribal ritual with clerics, he sterilized um, Queen Jinga and her sisters, where they just poured these oils, these boiling oils and herbs onto their stomachs to make sure that they would have no competition um, it was just crazy, but essentially what she did was she kind of won favor with the Portuguese, kind of set up uh, essentially a bit of a trade deal, and then came back and just set this whole campaign against her brother, just a whisper campaign of pretty much just crushing down his self-esteem until um, eventually he took his own life, either we don't know by her poison or by his own, but um, essentially kind of a Lion King plot comes in where... Um, <laughs> Yes, his, um, her brother's son, um, who was given to a war chief for protection until he became of age, she decided that all of a sudden she was so conveniently in love with this war chief, um, very conveniently. <laughs> and so at the wedding, actually, um, is history's first red wedding for any Game of Thrones fans, um, where essentially before vows were taken, she um, had the boy seized and his throat cut and thrown into a river and just for fun as party favors, slaughtered a lot of the guests. But um, so a very um, vibrant beginning to her reign, but she lives this amazing adventurous life and kind of a back and forth with the Portuguese, um, sometimes on the run, sometimes pushing back, sometimes cut, completely cutting off their slave trade and their profits there. Um, but the most important thing about her that we really liked was her ability to bring very different cultures together. And that scene and um, when she's making relationships with the Portuguese, uh, she actually becomes um, baptized in the Catholic faith, which she never saw as a conflict with her um, ancestor 
worshiping traditional beliefs. Um, and she carries those with her because to her, that's, hey, more followers and a more secure afterlife. And even going on from there, um, she later joins up with pretty much the baddest bunch you can imagine, this um, bloodthirsty, sacrificing, um, crazy uh, warrior tribes that essentially worships blood in the battlefield. And she joins up with them, um, which is kind of a culture shock to both of her past cultures. Um, he sounds really incredible. Bring, yeah, yeah, just bring all these people <laughs> did together. Did she drink and, and the she, blood? I think I read that. Yes, yes, actually, she did. She would, you know, a big part of, a common theme in a lot of these leaders is that they participate in these rituals because it's what their people believe and they understand their audience enough to perform these things. And, and we look at that as like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. But to the tribe when she needed an army, that's like their hype music going. That's, you know, they, they would cover themselves in these oils made out of crushed corpses and everything. It was just crazy. But she was doing this and fighting alongside of her people um, into her 60s. Um, just really incredible things. Um, so, yeah. So I think that's probably wrapping up why she's our number one. Yeah, Zhinga was, the, was the, the sort of most colorful one, partly because she was a hands-on fighter, not a great, afraid to get her hands dirty. Mm -hmm. um, my personal fave was, was a much later time. I was actually alive at this point, although I don't remember anything about it. Uh, that's Golda Meir, who led Israel through the 1973 Yom Kippur War. I think Golda gets the You're Never Too Old Award. Uh, she took the reins as Israel's prime minister when she was about to turn 70. Uh, she was plagued with uh, a lot of health problems. Uh, she had uh, migraines, uh, phlebitis, arthritis, uh, she, uh, a, a lymphoma. She was a cancer survivor. Uh, undergoing cancer treatment. She uh, chain smoked and um, she was a very unlikely war leader in one sense in that she didn't have any military training and didn't know the basics of military organization. So she didn't know, for instance, you know, how many soldiers are in a division. But Golda did have a very keen sense of statesmanship. She knew how to triangulate the needs of the battlefield with the superpower relations the United Nations, and the end goal of eventually getting recognition from the Arab countries around her uh, to allow Israel to uh, lead a, a permanent and uh, peaceful existence. So she made a number of decisions during the 1973 war. Uh, that was when Egypt and Syria uh, jo jointly invaded Israel. Um, but she made a number of decisions that were really military decisions. And uh, the papers at the time in Israel noted it was kind of strange to see this, uh, you know, almost 75-year-old uh, babushka out there uh, giving essentially orders and making military decisions. But she did it in four, four, uh, four times. The first one, she in the first instance, she... Uh, told the Israeli Air Force they would not launch a preemptive strike once she found out that Israel and Syria were about to invade. Uh, as some of our listeners may know, uh, in the 1967 war, the playbook that Israel used was a preemptive airstrike, and then that gives you time to get your troops on the ground ready for the, the ground fight. Uh, she figured that if 
if Israel made a first strike, that would allow her opponents to credibly claim that Israel started the war. And uh, then uh, allies such as the United States might run for cover or at least be reluctant to provide ammunition, uh, missiles, tanks, uh, other war material when uh, Israel needed it most. So she overruled her, uh, the advice of her generals and allowed the Egyptians and Syrians to strike first. That proved to be a, a good decision because the United States uh, was quick to step up with military aid, I think about 10 days into the war. The second decision she made was not to use nuclear weapons. At, because she had foregone the first strike option, and Israel is not a very large country geographically, the Syrians were pressing on the Golan Heights. The Egyptians made it across the Suez and were breaching the Israeli line in the, in the Sinai Peninsula in a couple of places. And uh, the idea was brought to her by her defense minister that perhaps Israel ought to assemble its nuclear weapons just in case. And she told her foreign minister and the head of their uh, Atomic Agency Commission, forget it, we're not gonna break the taboo of using nuclear weapons. We're gonna stand or fall on our conventional capabilities. And uh, that decision proved to be right as well. The third military decision dealt with whether to make the primary effort against Egypt or against Syria. And a few days into the war, uh, her troops were doing a little better against, uh, against Syria. And her general said, well, maybe we should now move and fight the Egyptians in the Sinai. Um, and uh, that, would, uh, that, that way we can reclaim the Sinai ground. The idea being not to let the invaders end up with the war's end with them holding any, any of Israel's uh, occupied territory. They were afraid that that would send a signal to everyone that war does pay dividends. And uh, she made the decision to continue pressing forward against Damascus in Syria because she concluded, and this required some military calculation, that uh, it would take four days to get the troops across the Sinai and into action against Egypt. And during that four days, the United Nations would probably require uh, the, two, the sides to, uh, to uh, agree to a ceasefire. And she wanted to make sure that they had some dirt that they could trade on the Syrian side with, with Egypt on the other side. Uh, so that was her third major decision. And her fourth decision was not to permit Israel to uh, humiliate Egypt so badly that it would feel like it would need revenge. Uh, she ended up with a ceasefire with Egypt uh, where, the, where the Israelis allowed the, uh, the Egyptian Third Army to uh, basically they didn't destroy it and humiliate President Anwar Sadat so badly that he would have no flexibility in the future to negotiate. As a result, uh, about three years after the war's end, three and a half, I guess, uh, the two sides, Israel and uh, Egypt, were uh, uh, able to conclude the Camp David Accords where they agreed to live in peace permanently. So that's, that's why she gets my vote. She sounds, she sounds like an incredible woman. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Great, great minds think alike, right? Exactly. <laughs> she, she, is, she, she is, and she was sort of, she sort of played the part of the old grandma, you know, my varicose veins, mm -hmm. I'm long suffering, but she could be a total badass. So in the 1940s, 
when Israel was under British occupation, it, it was British mandate in Palestine, uh, there were a number of, is, uh, of, of Jewish terrorist groups that were killing Britons and bringing down British reprisals. And uh, Golda went to David Ben-Gurion and said, these guys are bringing down the wrath of the empire on us. Uh, we've got to stop them by any means necessary. And Ben-Gurion said, are you saying what I think you're saying? And she said, yeah, anything we got to do. And Ben-Gurion said, we're not going to let uh, Jews kill other Jews in Palestine. And she said, look, you can't let them stand in the way of this. They're effectively killing us. And so she advocated sending out hit squads against her own people to ensure that uh, the larger political goal was, uh, was fulfilled. And then, then you, as you may have seen from the Steven Spielberg film of, uh, not that long ago, Munich, uh, she also agreed to send Mossad assassin squads out against the Black September terrorists that uh, killed the Israeli athletes in the 1972 Olympics. So she could be as hard-bitten as you needed her to be, but she didn't like to. I would so not mess with her. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we've got uh, one that you guys agree on, one that you disagree on, um what else do you guys what other ones do you guys disagree or disagree on so i guess for the third place because i do agree that golda definitely is in second place um <laughs> definitely but um so for our third place is kind of where we disagree on our kates so um we, we agree on their first names yeah we agree on the first <laughs> names so, on the yeah. so um, one is catherine so the great right yes yep. yes so that's my dad's choice um i i agree i agree with john i love catherine the great Mm -hmm. go for it john all right um, so briefly yeah. make your case for catherine the great being number three yeah catherine the great the big thing about her is uh not only did she deal with a uh with a difficult husband and she came in from a foreign land she had not an ounce of russian blood uh but ruled one of the largest empires in history but she managed to well, she managed uh, a number of wars with the Ottoman Empire, uh, with Poland, and uh, importantly, she created a playbook that has been that was used hundreds of years later. Uh, in uh, I think it was 1786, she annexed the Crimean as a means of getting Russia into the Russian Empire into the Black Sea, uh, keeping the warm water port, all those things that we know Russians really like. And what happens in 2014? Uh, Vladimir Putin does the exact same thing. He just takes a page from Catherine's playbook. Uh, Catherine also 
negotiates with the Germans, uh, Frederick the Great and Maria Theresa of Austria, to uh, bite off chunks of Poland. And uh, they did that three times with uh, partitions under her reign until there was no, nothing left of Poland. And uh, Lena's you know, not going to like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exa oh, exactly. But then, but then no comment. You no think comment. About it, <clears throat> yeah, you, but then you think about it, uh, Germans and Russians carving up Poland. When have we heard that again? So the things she did provided kind of a, a template for what these powers in Eastern Europe uh, later on did. And, uh, you know, it's the, the fact that she, it, it's not, not saying that it's a good thing, but just that's how influential she was in, in that her actions were echoed throughout the centuries. Can I just say though, that before she found her mojo, my favorite Catherine, the great anecdote is so, uh, she was married to, is it, is it Paul the third or Peter the third? One of it, was, them. it was Peter III. Yeah, and yeah, he, was I mean, he was wet and pathetic. And apparently their early married life consisted of, so he liked to sit on the bedspread and spread out all his toy soldiers and play war on the duvet. And apparently her job was to sit there and make the cannon noises. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it, the, guy was the guy was a nut. So, uh, and, and she ingratiated herself with the military, with the clergy. She learned Russian. She converted from Lutheran to Orthodox. Um, and he was down on everything Russian. And so that's why she, in the end, uh, effectively gave him an Irish divorce. <laughs> so, John, I completely and utterly agree with you. But I want to know, why does Emily disagree? Well, I will tell you that. Um, so I think we can both agree uh, that they both had difficult husbands, definitely. Um, mm -hmm. So my, yeah. my choice for listeners is Katerina Sforza, um, who lived in the late 1400s, early 1500s. And it's, first of all, a very readable chapter because there's so many, so many um, names dropped in it. Da Vinci, Botticelli, Machiavelli, Michelangelo. She lived at this beautiful Italian Renaissance time as I said, in Italy. Um, and, you know, just so many connections that I think readers and I personally felt, you know, hearing those names, but also um, her family crest, the Sforza crest, uh, survives um, on the Alfa Romeo um, Milanese car company logo, which is um, a serpent eating a man. Um, what I liked about her is I think she was very hands-on in the action, excuse me, in the actions that she took, um, especially just with her people and how she ruled. She grew up learning about cosmetology, botany, um, and spent her extra time um, learning a lot about medicine and science and creating recipes um, and even just serving her people. Like, for example, during the bubonic plague, she went to her people um, with her own recipes and, and healed them, which I think is, first of all, very admirable. And um, as a nurse, for yeah, sure. as, a, as a nurse, um, definitely in, in these times as well, um, you know, all those people out there who have to go into work and have to um, take care of people. So first of all that, but also hands on in terms of taking charge when the moment is right. And she is so incredibly brave. She's known for her use of fortresses, uh, which are used about three times in her life. Um, so essentially the first really big time was, um, so she married, um, her husband. And when she took charge, essentially, he was, um, he was under the Pope's favor. Um, but that Pope eventually passed away. And so she knew 
while her husband, her very difficult husband, was out on a revenge vendetta, which is very on brand for him, <laughs> um, she immediately took charge, um, I believe seven months pregnant, and rode all the way um, down to Rome and pretty much set up camp at a big castle, um, Castle San Angelo, with her cannons pointed directly um, <clears throat> at the site of papal election. So essentially, all the cardinals that wanted to come to essentially elect a new pope, get that set up again, would have to wait until she allowed them to cross that bridge. Apologies, um, so that's my she... doorbell, but yeah, carry on. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. <laughs> um, so she had her guns on Rome, essentially. She took charge in that time when a man was out of the picture, off doing whatever, um, and she took charge. And, and she stood there and she said, I want um, full payment, um, I want my all the titles confirmed before I let anyone walk across that bridge. Um, and there would be a lot of really great stands that she would do later. For example, when her husband was murdered, uh, murder and assassination is a very recurrent theme in this chapter, unfortunately, but when her He's husband Italy, was murdered. So, uh, that's kind yeah, of that's their bag. Yeah, that's why we love Italy. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, actually her castle, uh, was, I think it's it appears in the video game Assassin's Creed. It does, it? yeah. Uh, uh, Rocca, Rocca di Rebeldino, um is in Assassin's Creed. Yes, she's also a character in that. Um, and again, like I said, so many connections, including um, the hit Showtime series, uh, The Borgias, which you watched, correct, Dad? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that, that castle shows up several times in her life. The first time... Um, when a rival family essentially tries to overthrow her own, murdering her husband, um, she makes this really incredible stand um, where she gets captured. But before she does, she tells the captain in her fortress, do not give this up. I don't care what I say, how much I cry or beg. Do not give up this castle until I otherwise tell you to. And, and the family um, who's trying to overthrow them, the Orsis, had her go up there and cry and, and yell for the castle, but the captain followed his orders and eventually she got a spy in there and sent a message. The next day he comes out and says, well, on two conditions, I will give up this fortress to the Orsis. And he says, one, I want full payment for my time here. And two, I want a letter of recommendation for my next employer to know that I was loyal. Very, very fair of him. Um, but he also <laughs> said that he wanted Katarina inside the walls of the castle so it would um no signs of coercion or anything um and so they the orsi family had her children pretty much with knives at their necks and she walks up to the castle essentially um gives them the bird or flicks them off at, at what the time periods was um walks in and doesn't come out and she appears later at the top of the castle saying this is mine I'm going to point all of my cannons at your houses and your churches and your buildings. And, you know, the Orsi family said, well, we have your children. And she very dramatically lifts up her skirts to show them and says, I can make more, which I, <laughs> as a child, <laughs> was very scary. Um, but it, she knew at that time, it wasn't just, a, I don't care about my children. It was a, if I give up, we're all dead. We're all, or essentially have a life not worth living with torture and everything. Do you um, know what? I just, I'm going to agree with you. I'm sorry, John, but I'm totally siding with, with Emily. Yeah. I was pretty much sold already, but when she did the skirt thing, not Emily, the oh, yeah. queen, uh, you, you when know. she did, <laughs> I was sold. 
that, that's that, yeah guys obviously can't do that quite as much <laughs> although I suppose, I'm sure that there's some Monty Python uh, allusion to it somewhere but uh, you know Katerina was uh, I mean she was married off at 10 uh, she was widowed by 25 and was a botanist a warrior cosmetologist uh, became a rape victim to the Pope's son a general uh, she hired uh, these executioners who were just absolutely brutal, like full on Braveheart. And uh, probably, you know, Emily, I got to agree with you. She probably (laughs) lived, she lived the most interesting life, certainly of the Italian Renaissance of any woman. Emily wins. Okay, so one oh, thing. Okay. <laughs> one of the things. Not uh, the first time. No. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I mean, dad just knows the car. To it Yeah. No, that means dad's taking the dogs for a walk next time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for real. Well, the, but, the good thing about dogs is you can walk them as much as you want, and they have no sense of time. If I, if I tried to get my, you know, if you, you try to get a person to walk as much as these dogs have been walked, they look at you and go, it's only been two hours. Uh, I just want to sit on the couch and eat tortilla chips and uh, finish binging the Ozarks. <laughs> okay. So uh, before we, we hooked up for this call, we did ask you as well to think about in your book, um, which war queen surprised you the most when you started walk, uh, working on her? I think um, what surprised me the most was actually Cleopatra because Everyone thinks you know everything about her, but when we were going through it, we were getting ready for presentations that we've done this past week on our book tour. We were kind of giving everyone electives almost, and we and we said that Cleopatra's was um, most likely to sit on the couch and eat chips <laughs> um, because in the paintings, that's what she looks like. She's lounging. She's um, on chairs. She's on. She's hanging out with hanging out with Richard Burton. Well, you don't envisage Elizabeth Taylor really getting her hands dirty ever do you exactly right. yeah i mean they're so dainty <laughs> She's the loun- yeah lounging this queen in history according to the pictures and hollywood and and that's what we thought going into it yeah. so why is she not she's absolutely not she was this incredible workhorse um who did so many incredible things both in wartime and um one fun fact that surprised me the most was um how many languages she spoke um I can't remember, was it seven or nine? It was nine, yeah. According um, to Plutarch, yeah. According to Plutarch, um, including the language of her people, which actually a lot of the pharaohs and rulers at the time didn't even speak the language of their people. And so um, what was so incredible was when she was cast out by her brother, just using her voice, she was able to raise armies because she had such an intellect and, and an incredible command of phrase. Um, yeah, she was she was eloquent, and Egypt had a very tightly planned economy. So, mm-hmm. whether it was import duties or uh, labor costs or shifting crops from one part of the kingdom to another, uh, whatever was going on in Egypt, it all filtered up through Alexandria. It's uh, it's Greek influenced capital, and uh, that meant Cleopatra had to be basically one of the workingest queens in uh, in all of history. So you, um, you've opened a can of worms now because Alina is a closet history nerd and she's, she's ready with a list. Ooh, ooh, okay, let's go for it. Well, actually, nobody repeat this. I am a closet ancient historian, um, which which going to show my geekiness when we get the ancient historians on. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I've got two questions about Cleopatra. So do you actually think her relationships um, with Mark Antony and Caesar, were they politically motivated or did she actually love them? 
Uh, with Caesar, it was not only politically motivated, but uh, physical safety motivated. Remember, she first started hooking up with Caesar when they were both trapped in Alexandria and besieged by her brother's army. Uh, her brother was the co-ruler and baby brother didn't like big sis elbowing into things. So with Caesar, uh, it was a matter of personal survival. And then it became a really wonderful, solid alliance for both of them. But Caesar had his own thing going on in Rome and that probably wasn't going to change. And uh, Cleopatra was going to have a, po a political, primarily political relationship with him until he got turned into a pincushion in 44 <laughs> BC. Now with Mark Antony, I actually think there was love there. They would, uh, they would party at night. They would go to uh, lectures at uh, Alexandria's uh, gymnasium and university during the day. They had three children together. He left his Roman wife for her. Um, actually, he, he left two Roman wives, his first one who went to war against Octavian, and then Octavian's sister. So uh, he threw in his lot, and as we talk about in the book, he had the opportunity to get rid of her during the Actium campaign, and people had advised him to cut her loose because Octavian, in that, that epic war, was technically only fighting Egypt. He wasn't fighting a fellow Roman, but uh, while Antony had a lot of flaws, loyalty was not one of them. Uh, Cleopatra, for her part, might have been able to cut Antony loose after the battle of, after the defeated Actium. Uh, and uh, she and Octavian exchanged a number of letters that we, we talk about in the book. Um, but in the end, uh, she didn't uh, either, either didn't trust the intentions of Octavian or was, was willing to stick with uh, Antony. And they, they, of course, died together, and she wanted to be buried next to him. Alina, you've got another one, right? I, I do have another one, actually. Um, Fire away. So <laughs> do you think Cleopatra identified herself as a Hellenic or an Egyptian ruler? Um, what do you think, Emily? I'm, I'm thinking, you know, her, her family tree was Hellenic, and, I mean, it wasn't exactly a bamboo tree, <laughs> but... Yeah. Uh, but it was, uh, it was obviously, you know, they took great pride in descending from Alexander the Great. Uh, her tutors were, uh, were uh, Greek. She had read uh, Greek plays that were, you know, not far removed from the originals. So if it said like, you know, the Persei uh, by Aeschylus, third edition, it really meant third edition. So they took a great deal of pride in, in being Greek. Uh, the Romans, of course, were uh, were infatuated in certain ways with the Greeks. So I think she probably would have considered herself more Greek. Uh, she wrote in Greek, obviously, spoke in it. Um, but she, she learned Egyptian. She learned the Coptic language. And as Emily said, she was able to talk to the people who tilled the farms and, and, uh, and manned her armies. So she was just very, like, like Jenga, she was yeah. able to to bridge cultural gaps. Um, so just one last question for you was just, was there anyone, Emily, that you did include in the book, but you didn't like them? Because that's possible sometimes. You research some people and you begrudgingly admire what they achieve, but you, you, you don't think of them as being awesome. Yeah. Um, I think in, in some ways, you know, a lot of them, because um, we've had some, 
tearfully cut chapters that I think are over in the corner with some dog hair on it now. <laughs> but um, so the ones we kept definitely had to earn their spot. But um, one person that I think we don't see a, a well-rounded view of, although she um, she was really incredible, was um, Artemisia of Caria, um, who in the times when the Persians were fighting the Greeks, she was on the Persian side. Um, her story is essentially the biggest I told you so in history, but also a bit of the biggest betrayal um, in history that she got away with. And it's a great story because she totally gets away with it. But essentially, um, she tells the um, King Xerxes, who was in charge of the Persians at the time, um, that, hey, let's not go into this uh, naval battle with the Greeks right now. It's a really, really bad time. But she gets overruled by a big table of men because um, he goes with the majority. She's the only woman in the room. They don't really like her, um, so they just talk over her. But she says, you shouldn't do it, and he does it anyway. Uh, she's included in this, and she's on a ship, and she's um, leading her own people into this battle. And essentially, the Persians totally thought they had this whole thing in the bag. They're closing in, but then the channel starts narrowing, narrowing, uh, the Persian fleet essentially gets tangled up, concurrence, um, oars are snapping, um, and then that's when the Greeks charge because they had really planned this out. This was more a home field advantage for them. Uh, but essentially in that time, she's like, well, I could either desert and die or I could fight and die. And she does something which is really incredible but also a really big betrayal. And as a Greek ship is pursuing her, she rams her ship into an ally ship next to her, one of the, on the Persian side, completely sinks it to the ground. She's holding on for dear life. Um, and then the Greek ship pursuing her says, oh, my bad, my B, um, turns around and says, okay, well, obviously she's on our side. Everyone's a little confused. There's a lot of banners um, running around at this point. Um, and from very, very far away, King Xerxes is sitting with his men and they're like, look at the amazing Artemisia. They're given very far away and kind of squinting, I'm sure. They say she she sunk the ship, a Greek ship, and won us a great victory. And um, so from far away, it looks like she had sunk a Greek ship when really she had sunk an ally ship. And she even got um, rewarded with this big base-like um, thing, I, I think is at the British Museum, correct, Dad? He stole um, pretty yeah, much everything, so it's a fair bet. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. But she gets this big vase with the king's name on it, which I think is essentially the equivalent of getting a bunch of towels with your boss's monogram on it. But she gets a big vase and gets an, a reward. Um, and while it's so incredible that she just totally got away with this whole thing, um, I, I think, it, you know, it is a betrayal. Um, so I think some respect lost, but cool story. Well, you guys have been absolutely incredible. I'm going to make a deal with you. Dust the dog hair off those lost chapters because I feel that, if, I mean, if it upset you that much, let's do a podcast on them as well and, and do the lost chapters at some point because you guys have been incredible. Emily, you should be a historian, not a nurse, but don't take my advice on that because I do not want to subject you to a life of being broke um, and Sitting with dead, hanging, out, hanging out with dead people and being broke so good luck with your nursing studies um when they resume and john i so have to have you back to talk about the texas navy um so once again guys tell us wh where can we get your book and what's it called 
Yeah, so y'all can find the War Queens on um, the War Queens, extraordinary women who ruled the battlefield, on Amazon.com or Audible.com, and it is out currently. Or Amazon. Or Amazon. Excellent. And Alina, where where do we go next? What's tomorrow? Uh, that's us, silly. Um, oh, yeah. Tomorrow, oh, yeah. <laughs> tomorrow ladies and gentlemen, we will be exploring the relationship between George V and Edward VIII with, of course, Alex and myself. Uh, be prepared. But just a reminder, remember to stay home and stay safe. Good night. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, thanks very much, guys. Lovely to have you. Y'all have been great. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.